Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you, Lord, for a day, uh, Lord, 500-year celebration of the Reformation. And Lord, may we, in our time together here this morning, um, remind ourselves, Lord, of the impact of, of correction, Lord, that has taken place through the years. Many, many giants of the faith have, have labored and, and worked hard and stood with conviction on the truth from your word, um, Lord, about what is true about the gospel, what is true about our relationship with you and our needs and how, Lord, those, that, that reconciliation can take place. And Lord, so this morning, would you give us just a freshness of, of reminder of the beauty of your gospel and what you have accomplished, Lord, through the Reformation, in particular with these five solas, we ask in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So today marks the 500 year of the Reformation. In, in one sense, um, it's a day just like any other day. Um, people are coming and going. The sun eventually will come up. Um, birds fly in the air and um, life goes on. And yet at the same time, it is a day to actually mark because the Reformation was a significant time in the history of the church, but also in the history of Western culture, and you might even say the impact that that has had um, across the world. So it's a day to celebrate, and we have done that through song. We're doing that by reminding uh, ourselves about various people in the context of the Reformation. But it's also a day that I want us to see as a commissioning. Um, in other words, when we're done today, I want, I want us to be renewed in these five solas that we are commissioned to, to live them out, to, to rest in them, to see the importance of them in the context of our relationship with God. Now, as we've heard over the past few Sundays, the Reformation didn't start with Martin Luther. His nailing of the 95 Theses on the wall at Wittenberg um, was like that, 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 that marked moment in that particular point in time that was, might want to say, the shot heard around the world. But many men... Um, were uh, involved in challenging the church before that. And we, we've looked at Wycliffe, we've looked at Huss, and certainly the, the religious machine of the Catholic church at that point in time, which was the church at that point in time, it was the only church at that point in time, had been drifting. And, and there were those who were opening up the word of God because they loved the word of God and were saying, there's something wrong with this religious machine. It needs to be corrected. And so, ultimately, with Martin Luther, we have a much more formal um, focus of correction, which ultimately, we say, was the beginning of the Reformation. So, it must be understood that much blood was shed in protesting the errors of the church. Um, much flesh was burned as a result of this. But that didn't stop those men and women who loved God's word, who saw Christ as man's answer to sin and understood the importance of grace alone through faith alone, and, and that all God does, he does for his own glory. So what we're about to consider this morning, uh, namely the five solas of the Reformation, are not just some nice thoughts from the Reformation. These are five pillars of the Reformation. These are what marked the Reformation in its distinguishing and identifying what were the errors in the church and correcting it and, and saying this is what scripture actually says. So they emphasize the key differences between what scripture says and what the Catholic church was practicing and teaching. So this morning, I and my fellow elders are gonna present to you these five solas. And a, a, as we reflect on the pillars here, we also want to um, seek to consider how we are living them out um, in our own lives. Listen, God is not done building his church. If we're still breathing, his church is still moving forward. He's not come. He hasn't returned. And so he's called us to re remind ourselves of some of these core realities. So this morning, let's begin with sola scriptura, by scripture alone. And here, hear what I have to say at the beginning just remember, this is, this is a, something that runs contrary to what the church was teaching at that point in time. The Bible, not the church. The Bible, not a creed. The Bible, not a tradition. 
not a personal experience while sitting on top of El Capitan in Yosemite. The Bible, not a so-called private conversation that someone has recorded uh, and put into a book form called Jesus Calling. The Bible, not someone's story of dying and going to heaven and being sent back. It is the Bible and the Bible alone that is the ultimate authority for our understanding of God, salvation, and how we are to live our lives. The Pope doesn't speak for God unless he is quoting scripture. Nor does any so-called revelation from Mary speak for God, or any of the saints or some person's experience with coming face to face with an icon or a statue of a saint. It is scripture alone that is our authority for life and for living. Scripture alone. And friends, this was so important because the Catholic Church, the church side of it, emphasized that it is the church that must affirm and must provide the means of salvation. Where we find is that scripture says you have free access to the throne of grace. That salvation is something between man and God. Certainly now in our context, we need the church as the means by which that message of salvation is going forward. But we don't need the church to be the ones to say yes and the ones to say no. That is what Paul said to Timothy ultimately and continues to say to the church today. This is uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, I think it's up there on the screen. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Unfortunately, however, up until the time of the Reformation, the Bible was kept out of the hands of the common man for fear, ultimately, that they would defile it. That was the argument that was used. Now, we, we know some of that to be true, don't we? We know that, that there are people who take the word of God and they use it for, for, for sinful, selfish ends. That was true even in the pages of God's word with the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees of Jesus' day. We see it today in the cults and with false teachers. And we cringe even when we hear the Bible quoted in the secular realm. It's like, oh, it's going to be pulled out of its context. It's going to be totally misused. But still, that is not a reason for not having the Bible in the hands of the common man. Jesus and the apostles pushed and encouraged the common man as well as the religious leader to go to the word to open up the scriptures and to find out what it says to actually be true. When Jesus is in the Gospels, he says to the Pharisees, have you not what? Read. The point there is, you have the word, what does it say? To the disciples, Jesus said, and this is explaining on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then in the book of Acts, we have the example of the Bereans. They were Jews listening to the gospel message, and they, they opened up the word of God, and the scripture says they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And as a result, they believed in the gospel. This is the word of God in the hands of the common people. So there's no... There's no expression in the word of God of the common people being hindered from having the word. But in the Catholic Church, that was the practice. You didn't do that. And so, sola scriptura means that all of life, theology and doctrine, all of it are to find their source in Scripture. It is God's inerrant word. Through the years, when conflicts have arisen, um, the only right path to the truth was to open the pages of Scripture. I want to just end with 
a quote from Athanasius, who was a great defender of God's truth, in particular against Arians who didn't believe in the Trinity. But here's what he says. These are fountains of salvation, talking about the word, that they who thirst may be satisfied with the living words they contain. And these alone is proclaimed, the doctrine of godliness. Let no man add to these, neither let him take out from these. For concerning these, the Lord put to shame the Sadducees and said, you do err, not knowing the scriptures. And he reproved the Jews, saying, search the scriptures, for these are they that testify of me. Friends, it is scripture alone that reveals to us who Christ is, how we are to live, and what needs to be done. And salvation comes as a result of scripture being read and preached and taught. It is not the church that is the means of our salvation. Scripture is the one that points us to Christ, and it is Scripture alone that we need to listen to. And friends, that is so important. That is so foundational to us as a church. Lord, help us to love your word, to live your word, and Lord, to to long for your word in our lives. We give this to you now in your name. Amen. In Christ alone, Jesus says of himself in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus gives us no other option when it comes to knowing the Father. You see, in the world in which you and I live today, we like our options. In fact, you would be very upset if you went to a restaurant and you had only one single choice. Because you like your options. I like my options. But Jesus gives us one option. If you want to know the way, he says, it is me. He says, if you want truth, it is me. If you want to know the Father, it is through me. There is no other way. The Catholic Church teaches that salvation comes by faith plus works. But Wycliffe allowed the scriptures to speak and came to the conclusions that we are to trust wholly in Christ, rely altogether on his sufferings, beware of seeking to be justified in any other way than by his righteousness. You see, the reformers understood that it was Christ alone Jesse Johnson said, Solus Christus is a simple declaration that salvation is not dependent or dispensed through Rome, through priests, or the sacraments. There is no sense in putting hope in extreme unction, purgatory, or imminent indulgence. Instead, it comes to Christ alone. The Catholic Church used the ignorance of the people to elevate themselves to three, um, elevated themselves to be the mediator to the people that would lead them to God. Why was there ignorance? Because if you do not have the word in your own language to read it, you have to trust that someone else is telling you the truth. The people did not have God's word that they can read it for themselves. And as you've heard in many uh, weeks past, that many of them, Wycliffe and Tyndale, would write the passage of scriptures, translating into the language that the people could read. It was important for the reformers to understand that people needed God's word in their own words, in their own language. These indulgences was 
raise money. It fueled the building of buildings. Where the people were subject to what took place. Wycliffe said, It is plain to me that our uh, prelates, in granting indulgences, do commonly blaspheme the wisdom of God. Luke reminds us in Acts 4 11 and 12, Jesus, this Jesus, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no one named under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is Jesus alone who provides salvation. Michael North Horton said, the Reformation was more than anything else and an assault on faith in humanity. And a defense of the idea that God alone reveals himself and saves us. We do not find we do not find him. He finds us. That emphasis was the case of the cry, Christ alone. Jesus was the only way of knowing what God is really like. The one of entering into a relationship with him as a father instead of a judge. And the only way of being saved from his wrath. James Montgomery said, The Church of the Middle Ages spoke about Christ. A church that failed to do that could hardly be claimed to be Christian. But the medieval church had added many human achievements to Christ's works so that it was no longer possible to enter into salvation. It was entirely by Christ and his atonement. This was the most basic of all heresies, as the reformers rightly perceived. It was the work of God, plus our own righteousness. The Reformation motto, Solus Christus, was formed to repudiate this error. It affirmed that salvation has been accomplished once for all, and by the medieval meditorial um, work of the historical Jesus Christ alone. His sinless life and substitutionary atonement alone are sufficient for our justification. And any gospel that fails to acknowledge that or denies it is a false gospel that will save no one. B.B. Whitfield on Warfield wrote, The saving power of faith resides thus not in itself, but in the Almighty Savior of whom it rests. Eurek Zwingli said, Christ is the head of all believers, who are his body, and without him the body is dead. Christ is the only way to salvation for all who were in him and shall be in him. It is Christ alone. You see, as a church, we should proclaim this truth, and there is only one mediator. You see, we live in a world today where theology of pluralists approaches to God is being offered to people. We like to think that there is many ways to heaven, many ways to God in the world in which we live in today. But what did Jesus say? It is only. There is no other. So we must ask ourselves as individuals, 
have we bought into the idea that there's other means or other ways in which we can receive salvation? Jesus told us himself, there is only one way, and it is through me. 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6, needs to be our motto. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Ladies and gentlemen, may we never forget that it is Christ alone and no one else. He is the door. He is the means for our salvation. And when we forget that, there is no salvation. It only comes through Him. Father, I pray that we would understand the truth of this. That we would understand you are the only way. You are the only door. If we desire to have a relationship with the Father, it comes through you and you only. If we want life and life eternal, it is through you. May we never forget this truth. May we proclaim this truth loudly and unashamedly that you are the way to life and the truth. We pray this in Christ. This weekend I had the opportunity, or this past week, I had the opportunity to go out and see uh, my kids in Phoenix. And um, while we were there, John Piper was um, at their college, at their university, and uh, it was just, it was a rich time to be able to kind of hear him talk a little bit about um, the Reformation there and to talk about Scripture alone, to talk about in Christ alone, and for him even to kind of touch on the one that I'm going to talk about, and that is grace alone. And... um, one of the things that it made me think about um, was that when we look back upon grace and we look at um, its beginning, it's, uh, where it's first seen in Scripture, uh, we see that it, it opens up in the book of Genesis right there. And that it was the opportunity that where, where man sins, that, that God says, you know what, though? I have a plan already in place. And so um, he says that, you know, Christ will come and he will be the one who is going to, to defeat Satan. Um, and then you see in Genesis also um, when, when uh, Noah is at that place where everybody else is sinning and there is one man that God says, you know what, I, I have some favor for him. I, I, I look at him with my eyes and I say, there is grace that is there for him. And this one man, Noah, is saved along with his family. And um, so as, as I was thinking and reflecting back upon this, I was thinking about how um, in, the, in the Reformation, as Martin Luther um, was um, posting his grievances against the church, um, he took particular aim at how one could buy their way into heaven. How, how could you buy your way into heaven? And he essentially says that, you know, um, the problem that he saw there was that it was not for everyone uh, because uh, in this particular instance, uh, what, what the Catholic Church was teaching was that you still had to be somewhat of a decent person um, to be able to be able to go to purgatory. And now once you went to purgatory, of course, at that point, you know, there are some things that need to kind of come into play here in order for you to be able to... Um, go from there to heaven. And so some of those things that needed to happen was that, well, first of all, if you had purchased, uh, you had a certificate from the church for the indulgence that you had purchased, then that would help move you from purgatory to heaven a little bit sooner. If, if your family was praying those prayers for you um, to the saints, it was going to allow for you to be able to move there a little bit sooner. And all the while, these things... Or, of course, just kind of pulling people away from understanding what the grace of God was like. Interestingly enough, 
um, the Catholic Church had talked about the fact that um, there was a surplus of grace, a surplus of grace. And so they would take the surplus of grace. And of course, what they needed was a surplus in the treasury. And so we could exchange that surplus of grace that is in the church for a uh, surplus in gold that would help to rebuild these, uh, the, these cathedrals that needed to be rebuilt and new ones that needed to be built. And so uh, the Pope had, had gone ahead and, and made the mandate that it was okay um, for them to, to start to move in that direction and they were being sold. And of course, Luther is, is struggling through Scripture going, wait a second here, there's something that is greatly wrong here. And so as he um, goes on to uh, talk about this and um, to, to say that the church is moving in the wrong direction, Luther had concluded that there was an abuse of Scripture. Um, to sell this grace uh, was a direct contradiction to the work that God alone does. And, and that's, a, that's a big statement to make right there in those days, to say that they were uh, being abusive and the way in which they were doing things. So there's another man that is um, born in 1509. So he's, he's a little bit younger than Luther there. Um, and in 1509, he's born in France, and his name is John Calvin. And he was just eight years old in 1517 when Luther posted these 95 theses. And um, he was born in France, became a, uh, he was trained to be a humanist lawyer, and um, Around the year 1530, um, right about that time, he renounced his ties to Catholicism, and he began to join the Reformation movement. He eventually would leave France because of the violence that was there, and as it's already been noted, a great amount of violence that was taking place during this period of time, and he would settle in Geneva, and uh, while his life did not end as a, he didn't, you know, die as a martyr, he was often chased and expelled out of uh, many circles and places. Um, he would go on to author many books, of course, uh, of several books. And um, one of the things that, in particular, that he liked to um, talk about, though, and, and has really kind of had an M, uh, a lasting, um, I guess, a lasting legacy of his is, is to talk about the doctrines of grace. And, and while we may not all find agreement there. There certainly, that was an important place because it allowed for us to have the opportunity to be able to talk about grace and for us to be able to take a look at it from, from the perspective of what does Scripture have to say about this? Um, I would ask you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2 and to take a look with me at uh, what it says in Ephesians chapter 2. And there's, there are three things that in particular that I would like to, um, for us to see here. One is to see the need for grace. Second, how grace works. And then third, why grace is given. And so as we uh, take a look at this passage, it says there, starting in verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Here we understand that we have a need for grace that is great. Paul is talking to the believers here about the place in which we, we started and the place that we start is that we're spiritually dead. You know, the passage tells us that our sins made us dead and that we walk around helplessly as, as one might even declare about a, a zombie, right? Um, and so uh, we walked following one course that lives according to the pattern of this world that has been charted by the prince of the power of the air, namely Satan. And that's where we start because of the sin of one man, right? And just as we might think of a zombie being helpless to change its own course and craving its own, and in, in its own course and cravings and in need of someone else to change their course, this is how dead we were before grace. Before grace came to us. I believe it's also necessary for us to understand that death is a complete state of helplessness, isn't it? 
And just as we've already looked at, Jesus was the one to raise Jairus' daughter, and Jesus raised Lazarus after being dead for days. Guess what? Just like they were helpless, to, they couldn't raise themselves, we can't raise ourselves back spiritually either, right? That's all the work of God. It is his grace that does that for us. How grace works. It goes on to say in the passage, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. And I, I know that verse is so familiar to us. But I also want us to take a look at, at, at the fact that how grace works. It is because of God being rich in mercy. And when I think about what I deserve... And um, I don't deserve a whole lot. And, um, and yet God is willing to withhold what I deserve. He is rich in mercy. And perhaps you have been there at that place where you have cried out to God and asked him to be merciful to you. If, if you are uh, a believer today, you've done that. You've cried out for his mercy. And he is so rich in it. And then it says that he loved us. The great love with which he loved us. That even when we were dead in our trespasses. I, I think about it this way. That, you know, when a person is walking as a zombie that is dead, you, you tap them on the shoulder and you try to get them just, hey, would you just kind of pay attention for a second? Uh-uh. They are headed on a path. They're just, they're following their own cravings. And, and it's almost like you don't even, you kind of like, why would I continue to attempt to do this? And yet God and his great love for us continues his work. It says that he made us alive together with Christ. And I think about that as, wow, he, only he is able to do that. He's the only one that is able to resurrect me to that place where I can understand him and I could see him. In a time in which these men were living and these women, they were coming out of what was known as the Dark Ages. And people often believed in a lot of superstitions. And in fact, let me just say this, that probably their, their idea of, of the demonic world was a lot stronger than ours today. And you can see that in their paintings. You take a look at those things, and in fact, there was one painter that came to Luther at one point and asked him, how should I depict the gospel? And on one side, he has John the Baptist over here leading a man who is completely natural. And over here on the other side, there's a, a picture of a, of a demon and a, and a skeleton that are taking another man with a spear to his back straight to hell. It was the depiction of, of this gospel that is coming. And, and if you don't have this gospel, here's what happens. And people were scared about what it would be like to lose your life this way, about the, the evil forces that were out there. And so thinking about that, I think, you know, to know that he made me alive, to walk with him, what a great thing that is. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And I think about that and I go, I'm so unworthy of that. And yet he's willing to take me to the same place where his son, who was totally worthy of all of this, why would he do that? Well, 
It says at the end of that passage there in verse 8, it says that it is the gift of God, not a result of works. What a blow that was in those days to the church. But what a blessing it was for all men and women to hear that it is not by works that you will save yourself. You are not compelled to have to pay uh, in this lifetime to try to do enough things that you could receive some sort of certificate to work your way into heaven. If we look on a little bit more, we can see here that um, we see that grace comes from that mercy of God. We second, we see that he loved us even when we were unlovely and sinful. God loved us first. And then lastly, we see why grace is needed now. It says in the passage, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And I think about it this way, that Christ Jesus, he receives the glory, doesn't he? God receives the glory. We're his workmanship. He is the one who has, has made us. In uh, Romans chapter 11, verses uh, 33 to 36 it finishes a section there where um, it's talking about this mystery of salvation that has come to us. And it says there that, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? You can't repay him for your salvation. Nothing you can do. For from him and through him and to him are all things. It's all his. To him be glory forever. Amen. I think there's one thing that we need to consider for today for ourselves. And it's what uh, Paul had to say to the Corinthians in um, the sixth chapter of the second book of Corinthians, verses 1 through 11 there. He's, he's talking about this, and he's, he's essentially talking about the, the, the fact that it was worth it to go through all the suffering for the sake of the Corinthians, he says to them. And, and the purpose of that, as he says, um, he finishes, I'll just finish with this, that it says, working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no one may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labor, sleepless nights, hunger by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us. But you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak to you as children, widen your hearts also. It's that message of the gospel that needs to continue to come from us. When we receive that grace, it's the continual proclamation of coming to others and saying, you know what? You need to hear this too. You and I don't know whom God has called. We don't know. But I do know this. By the grace of God, I am called to live in such a way today that the opportunity is there for people to have heard the gospel. It is there for them to respond to the gospel when God comes to them and he calls them. Father, we come before you today knowing that uh, you are the God who reached out to us first. We did not, we could not come to you. And to know that uh, our place is assured and that there is no doubt it gives us great confidence to know that this is your gift to us. And while we may not see ourselves as worthy of it, we simply know that you loved us enough to do this. We give you all the praise and glory that 
your glory may shine through our lives and the lives of those that come after us who receive that grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I was assigned sola fide, faith alone, faith alone. So what I'm going to draw here are three things. First, the historical context. Second, the biblical context. And then I'll just take it home real fast here. Uh, my goal, hopefully, is not to confuse you, uh, but to give you more of a general understanding on what faith alone means. And so the question of the Reformation really was this. Is salvation by faith alone? or by faith plus works. In other words, to be saved from God's wrath, which is hell, do we need to do anything to get to God? That's the question. Do we need to do anything? As a teenager, uh, this was the question that was always on my mind. And here's why. Some of you know my story. I grew up in a Catholic home. I went through all the Sunday school classes in the Catholic Church. They were called CCD for short in order to receive the sacraments. And culturally speaking, it was a normal thing for us to go through uh, in, in the Filipino culture, uh, more than anything. But uh, by God's sovereignty, my parents sent me to an evangelical Christian school, believe it or not. And so if you think about this, Sundays I would go to a Catholic church, and during the week I'd go to a Christian school. Weird, I know. Um, Therefore, during the week, I was reminded of faith alone, somewhat, but on Sundays, it was a mixture of faith and works. And so you can imagine how confusing this was for a 12-year-old to go through this week in and week out. Now, I want to be clear here. Regardless of my Catholic upbringing, I'm not criticizing or blaming Catholics for any of the things I'm about to talk about in relation to the Catholic Church. Okay, I'm not blaming Catholics. But I'm attributing everything to Catholicism. In other words, I'm not blaming Catholics for what transpired in the Catholic Church. I'm blaming the religion of Catholicism. Here's why I say that. Because my parents are still Catholics. But I don't think they have anything to do with what happened 500 years ago. I love them. I adore them. I respect them. And I still pray for them. And so you can still do that as well for your Catholic friends. The struggle I dealt with during my childhood is what ultimately the Reformation is all about. The doctrine, the doctrine of justification is what divided the church. This was the conflict between the Reformers and the Catholic Church. The, do the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And here's where, where Martin Luther's uh, life and work come in. And so thankfully last week we, we got sort of the historical context through the spotlight. And one of the most important questions that sparked the Reformation is this. What must we do to be saved? What must we do to be saved? That's, that was my struggle as a kid. And maybe that may be your struggle right now. And this is what Martin Luther struggled with internally before his conversion. As a reminder, he was a monk in the Roman Catholic Church. Right? He lived a miserable life. As was mentioned last week, here's why he would fast and pray. He worked very hard to live a righteous life. He worked super hard. And he was in total bondage. When I say bondage, he was, I, I, I just see this, I, was, I sense this, that he was in chains. He was struggling to say, man, am I good enough to get to heaven? That's how I was as a kid. I was in total bondage. I'd go to my room and I'd cry out to God. Am I going to go to heaven? Or am I going to go to hell? And so, he wanted to live this righteous life. And I just want to give a simple definition of righteous. You know, we'll take the simple English definition that one who is righteous is right or justifiable. It's, it's a positional word, meaning to have a good or right standing with someone or something. And in this case, God. And so the question is, how can we have a right standing with God? And so Luther struggled, again, immensely with being righteous enough before God to earn his favor. So the question is, what happened? What changed? Well, Luther went to the only thing that he could turn to at the time. What would that be? The Word of God. That's the only 
turn to. Right? If you come to us as pastors or elders, we don't have all the wisdom. We point to the one who does have all the wisdom, which is Jesus Christ. And we give you his word. And so, in the 1510s, Luther studied the Psalms. He studied Galatians, Romans, and Hebrews for years until he became convinced that salvation, being saved or being right before God, could never... In, he ended up in the ocean full of scripture. And he was just swimming in scripture. Have you ever wondered about your own salvation? Either right now or before you came to Christ? Because that's what Luther struggled with. And so, friends, you could never save yourself. And that's what Luther concluded that he could never save himself, he could never be righteous enough. He understood that. And I hope you understand that today as you go through this. Luther found that salvation is a gift from God, and it is God, not the Catholic Church, who declares sinners righteous through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ by faith alone. Now here's the tension. Rome, the Roman Catholic Church believe and still believes that, this is what Sproul says, just bear with me as I read some of this. I, I put a quote here, but not this one. Um, justification is accomplished through the sacraments. Initially, this is from the Catholic Church, initially, the recipient must accept and cooperate in baptism, by which he receives justifying grace. He retains that grace until he commits a mortal sin. Mortal sin is called mortal because it kills the grace of justification. The sinner then must be justified a second time. That happens through the sacrament of penance which the Council of Trent defined as a second plank of justification for those who made shipwreck of their souls. Now, the fundamental difference was this. Trent said that God does not justify anyone until real righteousness inheres within the person. In other words, God does not declare a person righteous unless he or she is righteous. So according to Roman Catholic doctrine, justification depends on a person's sanctification. The, the, the justification of God depends on us, man, not entirely on God, according to the Roman Catholic Church. But Sproul continues. By contrast, the Reformers said justification is based on the imputation of the righteousness of Jesus. The only ground by which a person can be saved is Jesus' righteousness, which is reckoned to him when he believes. End quote. Now, to put it plainly, according to the Roman Catholic Church, Justification is received by the process of good works and faith. And so the, the Roman Catholic answer to the question, what must we do to be saved, would be to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and resurrection, and to live a holy life, to live a righteous life. Now that's a big word. If I say and, you have to pay attention to that because that's what the Roman Catholic Church believes. In addition to faith, one must maintain good works throughout their life. Now, in light of the Reformation, we know Martin Luther changed his view on justification by faith alone because of the Bible, because of what the Bible says. And so the question is, what parts of Scripture did he turn to? Well, he turned to lots of parts, but I'm just going to give you one, just one passage today, real fast here. Romans 1, 16 to 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the righteousness of God, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, here's, here's, here's Martin Luther's um, commentary on this itself. And hopefully you can read it up here, but I'm going to read it. We're going to read this together, okay? Because it's so rich. I'm starting. I greatly long to, to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans. And nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God. Because I took it to mean that justice is whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, 
I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him or satisfy him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather he hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul, the Apostle Paul, and had a great yearning to know what he meant. And this is what Martin Luther did. Continuing, night and day, I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself, listen or read, to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. I read this, and it was as if, it was as if the chains have broken of works-based righteousness. I mean, you could just hear it, right? It's just breaking open for him, and it's freedom. It's freedom. The whole scripture took on a new meaning, and where areas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it came to be inexpressibly sweet and greater love. The passage of Paul became, to me, a gate to heaven. How beautiful it is what Scripture does for us. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. What Paul's saying there is there's, there's no distinction. The gospel is for everyone, Jew and Gentile, for all people. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God, for in it, that's the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And it, I would say more like the righteousness from God. That's, that's the best translation. The righteousness from God will be imputed, will be credited to sinners who put their faith in God. God's righteousness, justifying people as not guilty, will be imputed to you and I because of Jesus Christ, Christ alone. In other words, what clicked in Luther's heart and, and his mind is, is, is this. He reconciled to God. He was justified, not on the basis of what he did, but on the basis of what was accomplished for him through Christ on the cross. That was it. That's the glorious news of the gospel. And he connected it to Romans 3.28. And it says this, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. It's faith alone that justifies faith. Because faith brings us the spirit gained by merits of Christ. That, that, that's what Luther said. Faith looks away from oneself and its own works and trusts in what Christ has done. Let me say it again. Faith looks away from oneself and its own works and trusts in what Christ has done. This faith alone is from the beginning and will carry on until eternity. That's what the passage says. You are clothed in Jesus' righteousness by faith alone. And so the great dilemma of the Roman Catholic Church that faith plus works would, have, would save people was finally resolved in Luther's conscience. And God used Luther through his word to wake up the church and see that all believers are saved by faith alone through Christ alone. That's what woke up the church. That's what sparked the Reformation is the word of God. Not Luther, word of God. And history would never be the same. So let me just take this home for us. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. Justification is not a process. It's a point in time where God declares us as accepted, loved, forgiven, holy, righteous in Christ. He took all of our sin. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be who, excuse me, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Let me end with an illustration here on justification by faith alone. If I were to ask you, why would God let you into heaven? Why would God let you into heaven? What would your answer be? Would it be good works? You know, I recently renewed my Costco membership, and so it made me think about this. You pay an annual fee, which gives you access into their stores. Am I right? And sometimes I'll bring my daughter, and as we're walking to the entrance, uh, she'll go running before me. But what happens? The Costco employee, the Costco guard, all right, who's guarding the entrance, will say something along the lines, right? Uh, you don't have a pass, young lady. And so, hypothetically speaking, 
if the Costco employee would, ask my do- uh, would have asked my daughter, why should I let you in? And if my daughter, daughter all of a sudden says, you know, I clean my toys, I took a bath, I ate my vegetables, what do you think the Costco employee would say? Well, that's not good enough. You need a membership card. And so here comes daddy. I pull out my Costco card, and I say, well, she's with me. I paid for my membership, therefore she has access with me. She's my family. And I think you know where I'm going with this. In the same way, when we close our eyes one last time here on earth and open our eyes to the judgment day that awaits us, we're at, and we're asked, why should I let you in, hypothetically, what are we going to say? Are we going to say, I read my McShane reading plan, I went to church every Sunday, I served in missions, I prayed every day? What would God's reaction be? That's not good enough. However, Jesus Christ shows up on our behalf. And what does he say? You have access because I paid it all. Jesus' righteousness is credited to us because of what he did on the cross. We're part of his family. And you don't have to work your way into heaven. Nothing will save us, but we are saved by faith alone. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, remind us again that it is through faith alone that we are saved, not by works. We give you all the glory now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to bring this, uh, bring this to a close with the last pillar of the faith, and that's uh, sola dea gloria, for the glory of God alone. And friends, hear this. We must remember that the scriptures that you hold in your hands have been breathed out by and for God's glory. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross, the atonement, took place by and for God's glory. The grace you and I have received has come to us, not because God owes us anything. He owes us nothing, but it has come by and for God's glory. And the justification that you received by faith that J.D. just finished talking about came not by your works, not by your effort, but came through Jesus Christ by and for God's glory. And that's why in Revelation 4.11 we read, Worthy are you. Worthy are you. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. He is the one who deserves praise and glory for all of this. As stated in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Is that your creed? Is that what you believe about life? Or is it something contrary to Scripture, something like, it's my life and I'm going to live it how I please? Or eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Or how about live it up? Or, hey, I'm number one. Those all run contrary to the fact that life is to be lived because of these things we've talked about and for God's glory. This is all because of God's glory and for God's glory. And I like how John Piper has changed that shorter catechism by one word, He says, man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And what he's emphasizing is the fact that you don't, it's not this drudgery that somehow glorifies God. It's a joy to be put into place through the the disciplines that God has given us, through the word, to enjoy him and to glorify him as a result. Now, what stands behind all of the things that we've looked at today? What stands behind it all is a God who is sovereign, a God who is completely and fully 
in control of all the affairs that are taking place on this earth. And so this morning, I want to leave you with just three concluding thoughts based on what we've talked about here. Scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, for the glory of God alone. Number one, I want to challenge you to continue to learn from those who have gone before you. Learn from these ancient ones, Wycliffe and Huss and Tyndale and Luther, Zwingli and Calvin and on and on and on, as well as the more recent ones. We began with a video with Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's one of my more recent heroes, James Montgomery Boyce, John MacArthur, men like that just who've had such an impact in a more contemporary sense. But continue to learn from them. Don't, don't think, oh, they're just in the past. They have so much to help us with in our pursuit of Christ-likeness. Secondly, reflect on the power of God through the ages. Albert kind of touched on this. The history of the world shows the ebb and flow of the, of the gospel of God spreading across the nations. There have been times of great revival and renewal in places where there was once great darkness. Places like India and China and South America and Africa. God brings revival by virtue of his gospel to places that we would say, there is no way. But God does penetrate those places with his gospel. Conversely, there, there is darkness in many places today that ex experienced spiritual and revival at one point in time. But now there is a darkness that has set in. My home country of England is one of those places. I would say Europe is one of those places. This is all, this reformation is all taking place in Europe, but Europe right now is growing deader and deader and deader from a gospel perspective. The country of North Korea was once a vibrant Christian country. But there's darkness there. Canada. Those Canadians, they're all over the place. Lest we look at ourselves, the United States of America, growing darker and darker. My friends, let's just be honest. What we need is a fresh revival of the gospel. A fresh revival of these truths being fleshed out in the context, first of all, in the context of believers. Secondly, in the context of the church in America. Set aside the, the, the country of America. The church in America needs revival. And we put ourselves in that circle. We need reformation. We need restoration. We pray then for revival. We pray for that reformation to come. But the third thing I want us to do, and this is the whole driving force behind a day like today, because I think this is the ultimate goal of the Reformers, is that we rest on what Christ has done for us on the cross. Just listen to, to what Jesus says in Matthew 11, in verse 28 and 29 and 30. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Oh, how good it is, friends, to rest in Jesus, to know that it was not my goodness or my works that brought about my salvation, but the goodness and the work of Christ in the atonement where he took my place and paid for my sin. To rest in that is a wonderful thing. How good it is to rest knowing that I don't have to work to gain entrance into heaven. That everything that needed to be done took place on the cross. Or to rest knowing that my right standing before God is not the result of my righteousness, but Christ's righteousness that has been applied to me. 
or to know that any good thing that comes out of me is the result, not simply of me being a good person, but the work of Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit being fleshed out as a result of who I am in Christ. So friends, today, as we close in prayer, I want you to go home and I want you to rest. Does that make sense? And this is, the Reformation brought rest to the body of Christ, to those who were seeking to find their place in heaven. Lord, help us today to learn from the history of the last 500 or so years in such a way that it would compel us to move on, that we would be commissioned afresh to be vigilant in our understanding about the errors of the church. But Lord, even more important than that, to stand firmly on the truth of your word and to live it out, to love it, to long for it to take place and to be fleshed out in the context of our lives personally as well as the context of the church. So Lord, help us as we, uh, as we just finish things out today, as we sing to do so with a passion for what we know to be true, and Lord, to be thankful for what you have done in bringing about the reformation of which we are a part. We ask in your precious name, amen.